Welcome to Secure Freedom Radio. This is Frank Afney, your host and guide for what I think of as an intelligence briefing on the war for the free world. Few men I know and that I know of have rendered more and more distinguished service, certainly in recent memory, in that war for the free world than our first guest. I couldn't be more delighted to say his name is Mike Pompeo. He has served our country in a variety of capacities, uh, beginning with his time at West Point in the uh, U.S. Military Academy. He graduated first in his class, went on to be a very distinguished Army officer, the successful businessman from Kansas that set up his run for Congress, uh, in which he served for several terms uh, from Kansas, and then on to become the director of Central Intelligence Agency under Donald Trump and his Secretary of State. These days, he is a distinguished fellow at the Hudson Institute, has been a friend of mine, I'm proud to say, for quite a number of those years. And it is a delight to have him back with us on Secure Freedom Radio. Mr. Secretary, thank you for joining us. Frank, thanks thanks for having me on this morning. It is indeed good to hear your voice and to be back with you today. After so many years uh, fighting for freedom alongside each other, it's good to be with you. Well, it's uh, an honor to be uh, at your side from time to time, and uh, I hope we'll be at that position more in the future. Let me ask you, sir, you have the distinction of having served in an administration that accomplished really remarkable things in your portfolios during its time in office. It must pain you almost beyond imagining to see that the legacy that Donald Trump and you bequeathed to this administration on so many fronts, um, just to enumerate a couple that I'd like you to speak to, uh, the, the practice of peace through strength, the actual rebuilding of important alliances like NATO, the setting back on their heels are adversaries like China and Russia and Iran, and the the remarkable accomplishments in the Middle East with Israel, uh, both in a bilateral relationship and, and uh, the Abraham Accords, a border secured and a wall, a building, um, on so many different fronts, sir. Uh, there was real accomplishment, yes, but also real security. And it's been squandered. It's been, well, decimated, I think, is a perhaps better term for it. And I just would ask you to reflect on both the substance, if you would, and, and a little bit of how it makes you feel having worked so hard to accomplish all of that. Oh, Frank, you know, uh, we did work at this and you used the term real security. This is how we approached it. It wasn't about fancy parties and having climate summits. It was about trying to deliver, shorthand America first, right? Uh, trying to deliver real, real benefits, prosperity and stability and peace and conflict reduction every place we went. Uh, it's, it's not it's not personal legacy that, frankly, just when I read the newspaper, I find just disturbing. It's, it's that the risk has gone up in just these last 13 months for our soldiers sailing around the world and our soldiers wherever they may be. Um, but to uh, those of us here who are in the United States trying to take care of our families, going to church and doing the right thing, now, now the risk to our nation and the American way of life have increased. And if you said, what, what bothers me, what is it that just, you said, you, I think you may have said frustration or must be a, a real downer. Um, it's not, it's not about preserving what our administration did, what President Trump and I did. It's, it's the outcomes that will flow from these decisions of American weakness and 
the risk that is created associated with it that is painful to observe because I know these things have real world impacts, certainly on America, but on our friends around the world as well. Forecast a little bit what that looks like. We're going to talk a bit more momentarily with Claudia Rosette, who I know you know well, about this uh, Xi Putin axis that was uh, formalized in a statement uh, last week. What do you think the world looks like as these enemies are emboldened and empowered. And America clearly regarded as, uh, well, perhaps a paper tiger or at least not an effective impediment to their ambition. So Xi and Putin together are a formidable pair. Uh, there's always been footsie played there. Uh, I think a little bit of this was propaganda. <laughs> they have their places where they'll end up uh, at each other's throats as well. But your larger point, which is uh, the, the dictators, the, the folks who don't permit people to worship in the way they want, who don't value human life, who frankly are running uh, operations like the Russian oligarchy or the Chinese Communist Party or the theocracy in Iran or the terrible leadership in North Korea, their little cabal, those are folks who feel emboldened today because the United States not because the United States won't send the 82nd Airborne every place. We weren't. <laughs> that wasn't our model either. Our, our model was to use the American tool set, our innovation, our prosperity, our capacity to convene parties and say, no, we're going to go solve this problem together and to deny them the space, the bad guys, the space to do the things they want to do around the world. That takes, that takes American leadership. And when we're not prepared or capable of doing that at the most senior levels of America's government, then the, the bad guys will roam, move about the cabin, right? The Southwest Airlines tagline, feel free to move about the cabin. Uh, they, I think they can see whether, whether it was the debacle of the way in which we departed Afghanistan, or even we, we forget the, the, from Russian soil, we had U.S. gasoline pipelines in the southeast of the United States shut down for days. And our president went and met with Putin and said, don't do that again. <laughs> that is a green light. Uh, for minor incursions, major incursions, incursions of every stripe, not not only military incursions, but incursions on the freedom and rights respecting part of the world that the United States has been the guardian of for so long. When you were in office, I think it's fair to say you characterized the Chinese not as a competitor, um, not as uh, a rival, but as an adversary, uh, if not out and outright as an enemy. And you worked with the president to treat them accordingly. Um, the tariffs, uh, notably, that um, helped enormously in trying to reset our trade relationships. Uh, but also, you were really at the forefront in the administration, I think it's fair to say, in terms of trying to do what my old boss Ronald Reagan did to the Soviet Union, which was uh, restrict, if not cut off, the cash flow that was enabling it to be a formidable threat to us. Um, I remember vividly your your remarks before governors, I think back in February of 2018, where you really warned them that they were being targeted uh, to provide this kind of uh, cash flow and support and, uh, and be targeted in the process. So talk a little bit about China, where we are with it today, uh, the Olympics underway now, uh, you know, lifting it up. Uh, what is happening, what should we be doing? Your, your analogy to the Soviet Union is a good one. 
the clear and present danger to the United States that the Chinese Communist Party presents is, is in my judgment, even greater than the one that the Soviet Union presented because of the Chinese economic capacity that the Soviet Union never had even at its uh, even at its peak. Uh, they are they are not a competitor. The United States competes with Canada and Norway. Right, the Chinese Communist Party is an adversary, and and whether we want to acknowledge that or not, I can assure you, Xi knows that and is acting in accordance with that, and has for an awfully long time while we turn the other cheek. And so, our efforts were were different and manifold and uh, cross disciplinary. So, we wanted to make sure we had a military that was capable of confronting the challenges China presents in the cyber domain, in the space domain, and in the more traditional kinetic domains, we wanted to make sure that we were there. In the economic space, we wanted to make sure that American technology, American semiconductor manufacturing, American AI had the capacity to shape how the economy would run for this next century, one that needs to be an American century. And then finally, and you referred to this, uh, money and uh, the Chinese united front. So folks would know the money challenge. We, if, if the Wuhan virus taught us anything, it was American economic dependence on China is really risky, really dangerous for Americans all across our country. If you have a job in Wyoming or you're working in the outskirts of Chicago and Illinois or Wisconsin somewhere, the fact that they've stolen your intellectual property, they've now moved it to China and they may not sell it back to us, the products back to us when we need them most should be something that every person across America understands. This is a deeply domestic issue. The the second issue that impacts every American is the so-called Chinese United Front, right? This is their efforts inside the United States. Uh, I spoke to the governors about it. I hope your listeners will all take this on board. When, when the Chinese Communist Party shows up at your PTA meeting with a check for a new jungle gym or a swing set, that is not because they love you. <laughs> it is because they want a friend when we, in fact, do the things we need to do to confront the Chinese Communist Party. And when when the state of pick a state, I don't even want the state of Pennsylvania has their pension fund investing in technology in China that could well be used one day to kill your son or your cousin or your friend in kinetic warfare that the Chinese Communist Party conducts against the United States. That's deeply immoral and certainly dangerous. We, we have to make sure that we use our economic tools to confront the united front effort, the espionage effort that the Chinese Communist Party is conducting inside the United States to confront them every day. We, we made one good step. We closed a massive spy operation that was being conducted out of the Chinese diplomatic facility in Houston, Texas. Uh, it was the right thing. I wish we'd have done it sooner, and I wish we'd have been able to do it even more broadly. This is something that affects every single American across the country. I love my Chinese American friends and brothers. The Chinese Communist Party presents an even more clear and present danger to them than it does to the rest of us, because they will chase them and their family members back home in ways that none of the rest of us suffer that risk. And try to exploit that as leverage to make them do Beijing's bidding. And I, I want to just say a quick word about one great friend of yours, a Chinese American by the name of Miles Yu, who rendered alongside you tremendous service in the State Department. Uh, and I really commend you for having his counsel, I know, on an ongoing basis now at the Hudson Institute. He is a good friend and a anti-communist fighter for freedom extraordinaire. He is indeed, all of that. Um, Mr. Secretary, let me turn to Iran as another place that the legacy of the Trump Pompeo team has been squandered 
and and it seems to me really done in a in a manner that uh, uh, is not just um, counterproductive, but really quite insulting in a way. Um, would you reflect on that? I must say on this, Frank, I am befuddled. Uh, I often can articulate someone who thinks differently than me. I can articulate their logic path, and we might have different preferences or priorities, and so we come to different conclusions. On this one, it is, I must say, it is just unexplainable to me. It, it is unexplainable to me that the, the, the stability that had been built out through the Abraham Accords, we had good Arab partners that, that recognized the right of Israel to exist. The deep connectivity that we had built out with our friend and ally Israel, not just it was important that we move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. It was important that we recognize the Golan Heights as the rightful real estate belonging to the state of Israel. Those were good things that, that not every occupation, not every, not every settlement, rather, was uh, illegal. And they not, that Israel's not apartheid or an occupying force. Those were important. But more broadly, we, we, we'd set, we'd set a, uh, a model that had isolated the Iranians and imposed real costs on them. And this is where on January 20th at noon of 2020, the administration found itself, and they inst instead of saying that's the right trajectory to keep America safe, to protect America and to protect the United Arab Emirates and Israel and the Saudis, instead of that, they said, nope, we had this deal, and it's really important that we go bring honor to the deal that we struck, the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal. President Obama did that, and so we're going to go do that again. The world had moved on, and yet today in Vienna, they are about to sacrifice American security on the altar of this JCPOA, uh, it's literally an article of faith. It's not a treaty, it's not an executive order, it's a press release that they now clutch. And, and they clutch it in a way that will allow Iran to have a nuclear capability that will put Israel in an incredibly difficult place and will, do, and will create a set of incentives for other Arab states to build out their nuclear programs as well. That proliferation risk is real and dangerous and serious. It seems to me we are at the cusp of war in that region, and it probably won't be confined to it, alas, because of the character of the regime in question. Mr. Secretary, I wanted to just touch on one other topic um, uh, with you uh, before turning to a sort of closing observation. Um, you've mentioned Russia several times. Obviously, Ukraine uh, is f feeling the hot breath of Vladimir Putin uh, at the moment. Um, the administration seems completely unmoored on what to do about this. Uh, on the one hand, it, it makes noises about opposing any invasion. On the other, it makes clear uh, there will be little done to actually impede that should it occur. What are your thoughts on uh, the importance of Ukraine to the West? Um, are you of the view, as some of our friends are, that um, we have no interest here and uh, there's essentially no difference between Russia and, and Ukraine? Um, and, and more to the point, sir, what would you recommend we be doing at the moment? So Ukraine and the Ukrainian people are not Russian people. Um, they often have Russian heritage, and some of them would be preferred to be part of Russia. But for the most part, the good people of Kiev and other parts of Ukraine want their own country and their own democracy. It's the decision that was made when the Soviet Union dissolved, and they, they continue to believe that. We do have interest there. Uh, between Western Russia and Eastern Ukraine, uh, they provide wheat to the United States and the world. A third of all red winter wheat moves through the Black Sea. So we, we think it's a long ways away. In fact, it is. But in the reality, this will drive red prices right on your kitchen table in my hometown of Wichita, Kansas, or in, in Florida, or in uh, Oregon. We, we, we have 
have an interest there. It's not the case that we need to send big troop forces to Ukraine to defend the Ukrainians. We should provide support to them and enable them to impose real costs on Russia. If you step back just half a step from this, Frank, and, and I think this is important, the the deterrence cap, the deterrence model of peace through strength that the Trump administration had and that we took on from the idea what, that Reagan bestowed to us, uh, that when that deterrence cap is lifted, this is what you see. I don't know what Putin decides, right? He's moved 100,000 plus soldiers to the West. He's got huge equipment stocks in Belarus. The Poles, the Romanians, the Baltic countries are all very worried about what comes next. I don't know what Putin will decide, but I know this. He, he wouldn't do this if he believed that the United States would stand with its friends and partners and provide, for, forget military or personnel, just the moral clarity that the United States has always demonstrated. If we did those things, Putin would be much more uh, cautious in the way that he acted. I, I can prove it. For, for four years, he didn't do this. <laughs> and uh, Putin hasn't changed. What changed was the American administration. And that thus the change in Putin's behavior. He was the same guy during our time that he is during uh, Biden's time. What changed was the American administration and the way that it dealt with him. Unfortunately, I, I think you can say that of every bad guy on the planet. And we're going to reap the whirlwind if we're not careful. Which brings me to the last topic, sir. Um, as I mentioned earlier in introducing you, you served in uniform in the United States Army. Uh, I know you've retained your you know, bonds with those with whom you served and the service and the military more generally. I'm very alarmed at what is being done to our armed forces at this moment of great and growing peril, in part because of the changes that we've just discussed. Most immediately, sir, I had an interview on this program last Thursday uh, with a Marine Corps combat veteran officer still serving, about the condition of not just his service, but the armed forces more generally in the face of the vaccine mandates and the ideological, well, indoctrination and purging, and more generally, the uh, hollowing out of our military in strong contrast to what you all did in terms of trying to restore peace through strength. We now have evidence that the damage being done specifically by these vaccines uh, is being doctored to obscure um, just how much damage has been affected. And I just wonder if you would reflect on the, you know, Don Rumsfeld's statement about you go to war with the army you have. This is the only military we have, sir. Are you concerned that it is, well, perhaps in extremis, not just not the deterrent we need it to be, but in real danger of uh, being at, at risk of unable to serve the security needs of our nation. Senator Frank, this is a, a deep question, a very important question. I'm very worried about trajectory. We can we can debate where it is an absolute value, uh, whether that's the Navy's capability, right? Fewer ships today than there were and no plan to get it to the right level. Uh, recruiting challenges, all the things that are the nuts and bolts. But your, your point, your point is a, a even deeper one, more important one. Um, I had the incredible privilege to be a young lieutenant in the Reagan heyday. I graduated from West Point in 1986. We had the resources, the money that we needed to do our mission to fight and win America's wars. But more importantly, we had a cultural backstop, which was a president of the United States who understood 
how to effectively deploy and support and defend those young soldiers that worked for me. And that was not just true in the Army, it was true in the Navy and the Marines and the Air Force as well. We, we now have taken this military and we've laid over it a model, which is a woke model. And that's, that's too glib and too short, but it is a model that has moved away from the core mission set, right? To, uh, to, to break things and to be a force and a power so that America's Secretary of State, my successor, or me, had the ability to show up and they knew what was in behind him, right? They knew it was a capable fighting force, uh, able to deliver. And, you know, we, we demonstrated this, right? Nobody, no, no other nation could have delivered what we did when we struck Qasem Soleimani, right? Thousands of miles away, a pinpoint strike against a moving target against just no, nobody. The complexity of that, there's no military in the world that could have executed that. To lose that on the altar of some other idea about equity, right? Sign me up for equality. Sign me up for giving everybody the meritocratic chance to go compete and be successful. If they want to serve, I want them serving too. Exemplified to, by the United States military. Military for, for decades, Frank. Yeah. Exactly. And to, to walk away from that and say, no, the mission set has got to be something different. We're going to underwrite the diversity and inclusion office to the expense of a uh, submarine development. These, these are huge mistakes that are difficult to turn away from. And so I tell everybody who's in the military who's listening today, uh, make sure you, when you talk to your leaders, do that right. Do that well. Make clear that you joined, you, you became a soldier or a sailor or now part of our Space Force for a, for a reason. You want to be part of the world's most capable fighting force, and you're happy to have brothers and sisters from all across America participate in that from every background, from Appalachia to Los Angeles, from African-Americans to Caucasians. We don't care what faith you are, but we wanted to be good at their job. And I want the, the, the person standing next to me in that tank to be able to load that tank round. I want the person sitting at the computer terminal who's going to drive our mission set to make sure that the missile fires appropriately, who's repairing our equipment. I want them to be world-class. And if we lose that mission focus, if we trade it for something else, if a president of the United States does what Joe Biden did, what President Biden did, and stands in front of his soldiers and says, uh, climate change is going to be the biggest battle of your life. This is, this is not in America's best interest. It is not in the best interest of our servicemen and women who risk their lives for us. And it will put America in a very precarious place, Frank. I couldn't agree more, and I couldn't have said it better. This is a moment when we have to get this right. It's, it, it would be a mistake to do this to the United States military uh, under any circumstance, I think it's fair to say. But um, under these circumstances, uh, in part uh, brought to us by serious mistakes, that have been made consistently by this administration, I will say, if you won't, squandering the legacy of what you bequeathed to them, sir. It is of the most fraught character, uh, the environment that they're creating. And we look to, I hope, course correction in the months to come. Your willingness to speak up, among other places on this platform, is deeply appreciated, and I hope you'll do so again in the very Thank near you, future. Frank. Thank you, you, my friend. Day. God bless you, sir. Claudia Rosette, up next.